Pleasure to be here again, and hey, guess what? The sun is shining, man. I know, it's weird. There is this amazing shine on the right side of your face as the window is open, and it's not a gray slog. Right, it's the massive forehead leaning in, catching that. It's my um, my solar sex panel, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> I anyways. saw that great uh, cartoon, and it was these people cowering in a southeast Alaska town, and uh, they were cowering because the the great ball of fire had come out, and they hadn't seen it in years. It was a really funny cartoon. Well, it's actually a photo photograph. Yeah. Oh, it is and a photo, yeah. It's a photograph, and actually that was done by my friend Tom Sadowski, and that was in the days before Photoshop. So he, he grouped several of us down there on Main Street, and actually right down on uh, Tongas Avenue, Main Street, and he shot us at different in different groups, and then uh, did a whole uh, thing in the dark room with the sun coming out and all that. that. Great. And I am the only person in that photograph who still lives in this town. Oh, so <laughs> I think what made that photo was there was somebody with crutches, as though they yes. literally, <laughs> as though they dropped their crutches yeah. from the excitement. Yeah, yeah, no, it was cool. Hey, you know, I, I told you I've been uh, walking a lot lately. You know, yeah. here in the in the uh, pandemic. Uh, uh, shut down the hunker down but uh i walk along the dock you know we've seen a lot of whales and the other day i saw this just mysterious pile of like seagull feathers right as if a seagull had exploded and then i walked to the other end of the dock and there was like another like seagull explosion well they wait are these eagle kills and they are eagle kills ah. and i have seen the eagles go after seagulls in the middle of the day and they fly and fly and fly, and they try to chase these gulls down. The you know, the, the gull will dodge it. But then I had a, uh, I was talking to a friend out on the walk, and they said, you know, I used to live right on the water here, and I would watch how these uh, the eagles would pick them off. They would wait until dusk, uh-huh. and the the seagulls would all line up and kind of be gently going to sleep, and that's when the big-eyed eagles have the uh-huh. special you know night vision the because night they have vision. the massive eyes and. And they would just go down and just boom, and uh, didn't just rip these seagulls apart. So do but these it reminded seagulls... me because we've been talking a lot about the T Rex and how it went about, right? And it has been likened to an eagle, and this is you know an opportunity. Yeah, but they don't but... have such large eyes compared to their body size, do they? T Rexes? No, but they've got that massive, massive snout. And full they of have sensory... the, they have forward looking. They have uh, right. What is that called? Binocular vision. Yeah. Yeah. But back to the seagulls. So do seagulls like stand up in a group and kind of fall asleep? Because their natural airborne predator would be an eagle or a hawk. Yeah, well, you can watch them. They'll all they'll kind of line up along the dock and uh, they'll all get up in a piling or something like that. Mine, and just kind mine, of go to mine, sleep. Mine, mine, sleep, sleep, mine, sleep, mine, sleep. We're okay. It's going to get dark and nobody will die. So. <laughs> when you least expect it. Yeah, man. So. Well, you know what's funny? I once read somewhere someone said, where do birds go when they die? You just never see dead birds as you're walking through the forest, as you're hiking, in your suburbs. Uh, Where are the dead birds? birds? Yeah, I do too. I mean, sadly, I've got these huge glass doors in my house and uh, we get about one uh, victim uh, a a month. You should put a thing in your window. I did, I did. uh... No, I put these 
they look like leaves, and they're supposed to have this infrared sheen to them that looks like stoplights to birds. And I put them all through my windows and didn't do anything. So hmm. I tried. Yeah, I, I will see a dead bird every now and then. But, you know, cats kill <laughs> yeah. a whole lot of yeah. birds. And yeah. my yeah. cat, we, we had a cat around the house for 18 years. And they have a huge impact on the uh, on the, the environment, the current dinosaur population. Yeah, yeah. So, I want to actually do a, a dinosaur feeder someday. Oh, I've got one. I've got three of them out on my windows, yeah. and they're brilliant. Oh yeah. In fact, there is a referee stripe-headed little sparrow. I mean, literally, the head has these black and white stripes, and he is an Alaskan migratory bird. And I and I forgot his name. Is it name. a Townsend's warbler, perhaps? Oh, could be. Turns out the little birdie that makes me refill my bird feeder every couple days is a white-crowned sparrow. And they migrate as far as the Arctic Circle during the summer breeding season. And northern birds migrate to southern United States and even as far south as northern Mexico. Yeah, we so send them down. One of your one of your dinosaur friends visits me uh, in the spring, summer, and autumn. But I was like, has anybody actually done a dinosaur feeder? Like, you know, the birds are dinosaurs, so maybe Troll Global Industries, Crossman, Puppetronics. We should do something like that, man. You mean you mean a giant trough of human and cow remains for the T Rex that walks by <laughs> your house with the no, I'm talking the dog about the tiny hanging dinosaur. out of his mouth. The smaller dinosaurs that live with us, the birds. Yeah, you know? but they're so birds. Just... They're not dinosaurs. They're no, dinosaur they are... relatives. They're... No, they are dinosaurs, dude. Like you are a lobe fin fish also. Okay, well, now you're getting ethereal. No, this is what we're doing this podcast, man. Realign the thinking of the planet. All right, okay. I'm sorry, Dave. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, are birds dinosaurs or birds are descendants from dinosaurs? If you are descended from something, aren't you still part of your, your if yes. you're a McCoy, you're a McCoy, Okay, right? but you can't call me a lobe-finned fish. I'm a human. I have the ancestor of lobe-finned fishes within me, but you can't say I'm a lobe-finned fish. Why not? You are within that group. You are a lobe-finned fish. You are a bony no, fish. A... The things that you are not, Dave, you are not a ray-finned fish, and I'm not but a you cord, are a lobe-finned fish. Cord, chondrite, chondritis. You're not a, you're a chordate. Okay, what's, your the, what's a cartilaginous, cartilaginous shark called? That is a chondrichthian. chondrichthian. You are not a chondrichthian because we split from them, but you are still within the lobe-fin tribe. But you I, are but still... you can't say that I'm that. I, I, I have it in me, but I am a human. I, I, I beg to disagree. <laughs> and actually, we have, had, we have had scientists on this show, and I say, am I a lobe-fin fish? And they'll say, yes, you are a lobe-fin fish. All right. Well, we'll we'll ask our next. And you are guest. a vertebrate. You are a mammal. You are a primate. But Dave, our next guest coming today. Hold on. He's going to talk about con con chondrichthians. Chondrichthians, because he's he found one or he found several. He's named ten shark species. Oh, that's and, right. And uh, and a horned dinosaur too. And he has something like sixty-five research papers on ResearchGate or something like that. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. He's a young scientist. He's he's stacking up the papers. He's uh, an expert of Paleozoic sharks. And, and shall we reveal his identity? Are we? Well, why why do you keep making it like it's a secret? It's not well, a secret. The listeners. Well, I guess it's on the label. And everything. <laughs> All right, we're talking to J.P. Hodnett today, man. He is, yeah. uh, you know, I've never met him, but actually I've, like, corresponded with him for 
I mean, this is another thing where on the podcast, I get to meet somebody that I know pretty well, but I've never actually That's had cool. a visual That's cool. inter- interaction. And I think he wrote me a note when he was a kid. Really? Yeah, I'm that old. Dear but... Ray, can I have a free t-shirt? It was something like that. I like sharks, and but I'll, I'll quiz him. <laughs> we'll ask him about that. Yeah. And I think he has uh, probably shares the same uh, love for Arizona as I do. So the Strassman family would go vacation there? Uh, we'd go and visit uh, Grandpa and Grandma in Tucson, uh-huh. and then they moved to Bisbee. So, And then my siblings went to, my brother went to U of A, and my sister went to Pima College. And I have probably explored every mountain range from the Catalinas in Tucson and the Rincon south to the Mexican border, all the way to the New Mexico border and the Chiricahuas. I've spent. And you've been doing that since your youth? All my life. All my life. Yeah. Wow. And this, there's a museum in, outside of Tucson, right? I watched that museum start as a little tiny place in a parking lot to the beautiful world class museum it is today. The Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, I believe, correct, right? Correct. And, and JP, I've been there as well. JP worked there. He was a, a volunteer there, I think, in high school. In high school. We're going to get let's call all him. of this. Let's call let's, him. Let's call him and find out uh, all about this stuff. Can you call him, Dave? I don't have the, <laughs> the thing here. Can you do the thing? Yeah, here it is. Hey, Dave, meet Jean-Paul Hodnett, paleontologist and program coordinator at the Dinosaur Park in South Laurel, Maryland, and a prehistoric shark hunter. I call him JP, and it's okay. I call you JP, right? Oh, absolutely. Always call me JP. (laughs) Hey, JP, welcome to Paleo Nerds, and uh, meet David Strassman here, man. Hey, pleasure to meet you. Uh, Yeah, I've read all about your work. You're a prolific writer. You got quite a few papers out there in the scientific world. But the question is, the real important question, are you a paleo nerd, JP? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would almost go as far as say king of nerds, but uh, (laughs) um, I bet there's my colleagues who probably uh, argue against that. But we'll we'll see. I mean, we can always uh, throw down who's the most paleo nerdish. So uh, why? Why? Why are you a paleo nerd? Yeah, how did you become a paleo nerd? Tell me, get, let's get the background here, man. Okay, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the honest thing is that I can never think of a time when I didn't want to be a paleontologist, even when I was, you know, t- you know, three or four just, years old. It was just your always DNA. Been, yeah, I mean, there's been times in the past, you know, I had an uncle who was in the Navy, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be in the Navy. He was a favorite uncle, so it was kind of like, oh, what my uncle does, well, maybe I'll do that. Um, but uh, but it was always like, no, nah, I like fossils and dinosaurs more than uh, naval or, or military careers. So I was like, yeah, I want to be a paleontologist. And it was always something that just kind of stuck with me. To get the start of that career path, um, kind of had to kind of start my beginning. So I was I was born in Germany as a, as a military child uh-huh. um, at, a, at a U.S. Uh, military base. And uh, when my father finished his uh, stint in Germany, we moved back to Maryland. And then, unfortunately, my, my parents got divorced when I was really young. So my mother and I moved to Tucson, Arizona. Oh, okay. And that's where I grew up. Um, wow. Tucson. Tucson, home of the Wildcats. Yeah. yeah Gates Pass. Oh. Mount Lemon. Oh, Dave. There's a, there's a story about Gates Pass. I'm not sure if you knew about the Tucson uh, Mountain Dinosaur. You ever heard of that? No. Oh, yeah. There was a, there's actually a pair of dinosaur knees that were collected around Gates Pass. Really? Yeah. It's... Now, Gates Pass, by the way, is the... It's a little mountain range to the west of Tucson. You go up over this 
Road Pass, and on the other side is the Sonoran Desert Museum and Old Tucson, the movie set, is behind there. Exactly. Right next to Cat Mountain. Yeah, so... um Surprisingly, uh, that section, I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but we'll tell this a quick story. Um, there's some Cretaceous volcanics that were there. And in the process of this like volcanic uh, material kind of erupting outward, it actually pushed up lacustrine lake beds. Really? That are, are about um, either their middle or late Cretaceous in age. And uh, part of this material that's there, there are... Uh, fossilized remains of fish and they have a pair of of uh like hadrosaur form dinosaur knees that were collected from there. you say knees knees yeah it's a pair of knees like so it's patellas actually the, it's it's actually well there's no patella you know right. dinosaurs don't have patellas but um they had <laughs> the lower end of the femurs both of them and then like the the upper ends of the tibia and fibulas on both sides the knees i had no idea the, uh, that gates pass was fossiliferous I thought yeah. it was all igneous rock. Uh, no, and uh, and there's and kind of go a little bit further. There was actually a school that's not that far from the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum that actually had these lake beds exposed, and they actually pulled out a very complete fish. And um, one of these days, I'll make it back there and, and actually study it because it actually looks like a kind of fish you find in, in southern Mexico. So, um, is this so what thought, age is that stuff? Is that Cretaceous? Yeah, it's Cretaceous, and again, it's, it's, I can't remember if it's quite like Middle Cretaceous or Late Cretaceous. I, I keep hearing different stories from different geologists and paleontologists. You will figure it out. You will... maybe I may just figure out what the fish is and then leave it at that. So, how old were you when you moved to Tucson? I had been around four or five. So, when I when we were growing up in Tucson at a young age and being wanting to be a paleontologist, and you probably heard this story from a lot of your other. Uh, guess is that you know you know being a paleontologist I got to go like to Montana and Wyoming you know I want to study dinosaurs and those where there are and I'm thinking like you know there's nothing here in Arizona but right. with my short story I already just proved myself wrong and when I got into high school I was fortunate that the group of people who were living next to me the dad of that family he worked at the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum and he hooked me up with the Earth Sciences Department and I became a volunteer there. And I got uh, introduced to a dinosaur called Sonorosaurus thompsoni, um, which is a it's a long neck brachiosaurus. Yeah, Sonorosaurus. And uh, I start well, not Sounds that like kind snor. of Sonorosaurus. <laughs> uh, the literal translation, if you uh, if you know your Spanish, is uh, it's corn lizard. <laughs> but it's oh. supposed to be a reference to the Sonoran oh, is that what Sonora? Sonora means corn. No. Yeah. Learn something new. See? So Sonorosaurus was uh, your uh, gateway to Arizona dinosaurs in a way. In a way, it kind of got my, my my feet wet in terms of paleontology. So I was about 16 at the time. And uh, being a volunteer there kind of introduced me to a bunch of other cast of characters who were kind of like the main crew of paleontologists in, in Arizona. Um, one of them was a group uh, from the Arizona, what is now the Arizona Museum of Natural History um, under uh, Bob McCord and, and Gabby McCullough. They kind of took me under the wing and I went out to uh, various other dinosaur sites so actually in the santa rita mountains there are uh late cretaceous uh lake beds that really? um produce dinosaur material and that actually became part of a project that i i wound up uh helped describing the first horned dinosaur uh ever described out of arizona called cretan denceratops krusinowski <laughs> i got that one that, that is a relative of uh triceratops it's a Ceratopsian? Yeah, it's 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 a ceratopsian. It's more related to uh, Nasudoceratops, which is uh, found in Utah. 
um, and Ava Saracos from like Montana. So this is from okay. the Santa Rita Mountains south of Tucson. Yeah. When you're in Tucson, they look like the Tolkien Mountains. A, a little bit, yeah. They're kind of off in the distance, you know, the Misty Mountains off in the distance. But that whole kind of area, the, the Santa Ritas, the Whetstones, they're, they're hot uh, Mesozoic fossil localities. I had no idea, because the only thing I ever found was the uh, Cambrian down by Bisbee and near Tombstone. There's this real, real old, you could find crinoid stems and stuff in this limestone down by Tombstone in the road cut. It's not Cambrian. It's actually, I think most of that actually is uh, Permian. Is it? Rob again, Dave. That might be what you're talking about. It's the Concha limestone, and that actually has some really cool sharks, Ray. So. Well, I gotta say, JP is one of uh, the brilliant Paleozoic shark people on the planet. JP, did you did you write me a letter as a young man or something? How did we actually, I remember corresponding with you or something, and I know that you are up on your Paleozoic sharks like a few other people are. Yeah, it was it's a, it was actually an email, if I remember correctly, Ray, and uh, it kind of started when I was starting to get a little bit more hardcore into sharks. Um, but that, that kind of came later in, in my uh, Paleozoic uh, or my, my paleontological career. Because when I really started off, um, when I was still a volunteer at the Desert Museum, I was just getting into fossil mammals. Um, most of the people who know me from Arizona actually know me as a fossil cat expert. <laughs> so, oh, really? um, so I started actually with uh, late Cenozoic carnivores was my my spiel. Wow! And um, so, kind and of that smilodons and smilodons, Homotherium is my my favorite saber tooth cat. Muras um, Anonyx, which will become uh, a well-known name, I hope, uh, down the road in a few months. So, Oh, oh, there's a hint. There's a hint, yeah. Um, uh-huh. I hate to cheetah you out of some new news, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, oh, I... I... Is this like an American hmm. lion uh, controversy? The cheetah is... Uh, the, we, used, we had cheetahs in North America, and not just the ones we elected, you know, the cheetah, cheater. No, uh, anyways, there's a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. But you're hinting at a lot of stuff. So yeah, cats I, were your first thing, huh? Cats were my first thing. And, and um, so from the Desert Museum, I actually got hooked up with uh, Dr. Jim Mead, who was the uh, quaternary paleontologist um, at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. And uh, he kind of took me under wing as my undergraduate advisor. And I learned a lot from Jim. Um, Say that word and, one more time. Quaternary? What? Quaternary. Yeah. It's, Meaning? It's, Meaning it's it's the essentially the ice age studies is going in from like oh. right so like the late Pleistocene. Is that um, quaternary? You mean like spelling with a Q? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, quaternary. It, it could be a well, potato, potato kind of pronunciation. Oh, okay. So. How do you pronounce it? I I, I uh, uh, pronounce it as quaternary. Oh, quaternary. Cool. I I usually hear that too. Oh, but... I've never heard that. Cool. Yeah, cool. and he he at the time ran a, a program called the Quaternary Sciences Program. It was it was more of a master's level program, but I kind of became integrated with the master students there and hung out with them quite a bit. And that actually was kind of what gets into this uh, whole American cheetah story. But we'll talk about that later, I guess. You just have to wait till the paper is published, so we can't really go into this. Yeah, it's 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 going to be coming out soon um, in a volume, and it's essentially discussing the occurrence of uh, the American cheetah in the Grand Canyon. Okay, cool. all right. I guess enough said there. When I think of uh, Arizona, the Flagstaff, you're up in Flagstaff. Yeah. There's a mega shark 
in their collection there, Megactino Petalus Kybabinus, I believe, sir. <laughs> yes, I, I know that shark is that, well. Is that a song? Wait a minute. No, Megactino Petalus Kybabinus is a spectacular bucktooth shark. Is this massive tooth? Wait, Kybab is... Plateau. I got the word right, Kybab there. Bob. JP, can you describe this shark for us and the tooth and? Yeah. Um... So, Ray, since you're a, a ratfish lover, um, you, I, I know you absolutely probably have to love the shark Megatina Petalus. I do. Um, Megatina Petalus is essentially a ratfish relative. It's part of the group of chondrichthians that are along the ratfish lineage called Petalodonts. Depending on who you talk to, the Megatina Petalus and some of its kin, like uh, Peripristus is one form, um, Pristodus. Anyway, these sharks tend to have um, enlarged frontal teeth or symphysial teeth. So they have these kind of like buck-toothed, parrot-beak-like teeth yes. uh, in their jaws. And Megatina pelvis These are scissors, like the scissor ones? Kind of. It's, it's more like a think of think like if you watch a parrot or yeah. like a parrot fish. Instead of having being like the side, uh, the scissor action like Helicoprion or Edestus, um, you were actually having a chomping. Actually, it actually has a good analogy. It's like Pac-Man mouth kind of uh, like that. bite uh, for for this particular group of sharks. And Megatina pelis took it to the most extreme. There are teeth of Megatina pelis that rival megalodon teeth in size. They're massive. They are are they massive. individual teeth, yeah. or is it one like large dentition? It's one tooth. Now, the question is, did it have more teeth other than the what? first frontal, the upper and lower? So um, like a parrot beak. Well, they were rotating about... in in the middle of the, the symphysis, right? Well, the, yeah, it's their the the upper okay. tooth. Symphysis is, is means center. Oh, look, I'm a newbie here. Yeah. Symphysis <laughs> means center, correct? Right, yeah. Okay, so you're talking like, trying to explain this, you know, over the radio here. Uh, you're talking <laughs> about like a parrot-like beak, but it's one tooth on the top and one tooth on the bottom, but it's... A curved one tooth? Yeah, so the upper tooth is curved almost like a horseshoe shaped. Um, right. It's jagged. It's jagged edge. So there's multiple cuspids that form this one tooth. On the inside, on the tongue side of the tooth, there's actually uh, a paired extra cusp that actually acts as a double scissor action for the lower tooth to come in. Now, the lower tooth is perfectly razor edged it does not have any jagged edges is it like it. the uh the uh, the placoderms like the, the dunkleostis you... not not quite i mean this is literally it's a almost a perfect triangle in a way wow uh, with a slight curve to it and that comes up in uh behind the upper tooth and it kind of includes you know chomping wow oh wow okay so you see these teeth as chewing on coral or no um that's i always think that's the biggest misconception about this particular okay. particular uh chondrichthian how big are these that's the thing so you think of something like megatina pelis has teeth about the size of megalodon you're thinking oh my god it's a 50 60 foot shark not not at all it's probably more along the the five to seven foot range so this is just to say this is just a fish that has really honking huge uh, teeth in its <laughs> mouth um, on, you know, probably has a big head and short, little smaller body. I have I have drawings of it. It's um, it's a pedalodont shark. But do you do you imagine that these are carnivorous then? Is that what oh, you think? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, because it was uh, another paleontologist who suggested that a uh, megatina pelis is, is chomping on like brachypods and corals and carnivorous. Right. But when you look at the actual structure of these teeth, and I have actually found juvenile teeth up in the round Flagstaff. Oh, wow. They're they're razor thin in some of these. 
this is not a good good uh, morphology to be crushing in on hard shell organisms. Break your teeth, right? Exactly. So I, I picture this thing is actually actively hunting other you know vertebrates, uh, maybe some soft you know body things like jellyfish or. Is this a Devonian like. shark? No, this is the, Permian. Actually, oh Permian. So that was Permian, yeah. But this is uh, maybe it's an ambush predator, so they come up and get it if it's a but. Yeah, I, there there are actually some sketches I I, I did back in uh, some years back that I kind of made it kind of like a wobbygone kind of uh, ah. shark-like thing. Kind of, you know, had this ah. cryptic camouflage, maybe little tassels on the face, which is totally speculative. I like that. So you're um, an artist as well, right? That you draw. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I was in college um, and, and kind of like late high school, uh, I actually worked as a, a scientific illustrator to, for one of my mentors. Really? Um, Rich White. He taught me a lot about mammal anatomy. He's a retired museum um director from the international wildlife museum in tucson was where he worked and he taught me a lot and uh i would between you know going to school and stuff like that i would go down to his office back in tucson and uh would sit in his office hours a day just drawing bones of various different things i think the claim to fame is that i have probably drawn a lot of the major specimens of animal caprids you know pronghorn antelopes from the past um has passed my 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 desk at some are you point. drawing skeletons that are in front of you and or are you well, this is like individual bones right um so so i had a lot of experience with that and and i think the, illust the illustration uh background kind of helped me kind of like help frame ideas and and pictures for uh, my papers and things like that well you know i know that we quickly steered into sharks because i just couldn't help myself and had to say <laughs> megatinopetalus kybabinus for you but we did on your career path here you took a big turn into sharks and then you ended up getting your master's degree with uh richard lund and eileen grogan out at st joseph's right yeah that's that's exactly right so what was the big turn where did where did you turn to sharks and then we could mention them it actually goes back to, again to my undergraduate career um the bedrock of, of northern arizona university is kaibab kaibab limestone and uh, it's early permian age and it's full of fossils. It's really well known for uh, invertebrate fossils, um, but you know historically um, there were shark fossils. So it was kind of like, oh, that's kind of neat. So lo and behold, going from one class to another, I was walking along the the campus pathways, and yeah, right off to one side of the path was a chunk of limestone, and it had a shark tooth in it. <laughs> and it, you it found it on campus. I found it on campus, and it snowballed wow. from that. So that became my hobby wow. uh, between classes and weekends was to actually start collecting shark fossils on Northern Arizona University campus. So the 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 site that was doing the research is actually the 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 right site there. to do the research. Yeah. Wow. And I think that's about the time you sent me an email or something. We were in contact right around then, maybe. It might have been right around then. Yeah. Because uh, that was the kind of the start. So when I. When I graduated, um, I graduated right around when the recession was really getting hard. I was able to take a few jobs at, at the Museum of Northern Arizona for a while, but then all the funding dried up. So the story goes, is that about 2012, and my wife and I were struggling, kind of like kind of making ends meet. So my father was actually moving in from one, one house to another, a uh, bigger house in, in the Washington, D.C. area. He said, you know, son, there's better job opportunities out here. Why don't you uproot in move east so we did and then it was about that time i was like you know i should go back to school and and get uh, my master so that's when i started reaching out and uh got in contact with eileen and and, and uh, dick so 
And who are they? So, yes, Eileen Grogan and, and Richard Lund, they are the king and queen of basically shark paleontology. They, oh, yeah. uh, they are best known for their work at a site called Bear Gulch, which is a Lake Mississippian okay. site that yeah. actually preserves complete shark skeletons and other fishes. Well, this is season two of Paleo Nerds, and almost every guest so far has done a lot of work in Bear Gulch Bear formation. Gulch has been a lot of uh, talk about Lagerstatten. Lagerstatten, uh, yeah. So, yeah, Dick and Eileen have been uh, working uh, out there, actually, probably 50 years now that Dick's been out there. What's and, the uh, museum associated with Bear Gulch called? Carnegie Museum of Natural History right, in Pittsburgh. Right. And then also there are fossils back in Montana at uh, University of Montana. But uh, the bulk, of, there's just a lot of stuff. You got to go work with these guys, and they're, they're just extraordinary fossils. And there's a lot of weird, weird sharks that come from the Lagerstatten there, but there are so many, it's it's mind-boggling, <laughs> but you worked on a tinacanth with them, right? Yes, so um, not to jump ahead of what kind of... But wait, am I, correct to, <laughs> am I correct to assume that the tinacanth is spelled with a C? Yes. This is so weird. It's like a tranodon. It's C-T-E-N-A, cinacanth. Tinacanth. How did that happen? How the name? Yes. How is it? Well, the, Why the is it a T-I-N-A? <laughs> well, I, I didn't come up with the, the uh, Latin right. version of the name. So uh, that's whoever was in the past who just decided. A shark it. bit the sea off. It's just there a you go. So it's a yeah, yeah. one. Um, so. But the translation for, for Tina Kant, it's essentially comb spined. Oh. Yeah. It, so you become a bit of a tina can't specialist and the godzilla shark is in here somewhere too right so can you sort this out for us all right so we'll, we'll roll back a little bit on, on this timeline here so before i started at uh saint joseph's university in philadelphia with uh dr grove and dr lund um i was doing projects with uh, dave elliott even after we're moving out to maryland i would actually go back and, and hang out with dave and visit the in-laws and things like that um so Around about 2013, um, we were actually describing a new shark. It's actually a, an early Permian hybodont called uh, Diablodontus Michael Edmini. Um, <laughs> Diablodontus, that means devil, devil tooth. tooth. Yes, yeah. Okay, so, I got it right away. And, and what kind of shark really you said cool, it was? A hybodont. Um, hybodonts, what is that? Hybodont sharks are a group of uh, sharks. They're kind of the sister group to all uh, modern sharks, including rays. Um, they went from the late Paleozoic, you could find them as early as far back as the late Mississippian period, so roughly 340 million years, maybe even a little older. Um, and then uh, they actually survived the Permian-Triassic extinction events. Oh, wow. And they actually extended well into the Mesozoic. And here in Maryland, we still actually find late Cretaceous hybodont fossils. I have a cephalic horn spine, and this is actually what makes the group so unique. It's the males, like antlers on a deer um have these little hook-like uh horn-like uh denticles on the sides of their heads and depending right. on what species you are it can be vary in sizing sizes or number and how many cusps they have on these on these little horns um so uh they're very kind of a cool shark and at dinosaur park where i work we actually find juveniles of a species called egertonotus 
um, Bassanus, if I remember the species correctly. And they're all juveniles. So every time I mention, oh, yeah, we have baby sharks, people start singing the baby shark song um, when I have school groups. So um, <laughs> The baby shark I don't know. Song. There's a baby shark song? Okay, you guys don't have to Google the baby shark song. I will oh, not is this something? Gonna, wait, gonna, wait. You're not going to share it with us, dude? No, no hold on. No, 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 no. I think this this went viral about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, it went viral on Instagram or something. Okay, well, uh, we'll link to it. But yeah. So we're talking hibernate sharks. They flourish in the Mesozoic. Is that there's a lot of them in the Jurassic. You got them in the Cretaceous. The Godzilla shark is a hibernate? Diablo Dantus? It's, it's uh, no, it is a Tina can. So what oh, happened was okay. that... Uh, in 2013, I was going to go present this new new shark, Diablo Dantes, at a meeting that was specifically on, you know, how life has changed from the Carboniferous period to the Permian period. And so we had a, it, was all, it was kind of an international conference, all based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, being hosted by the uh, the New Mexico Museum of Natural History there. And um, as part uh, of these conferences, they tend to have like field trips that are attached. And some of them are, are optional. Some of them, you know, they're like, hey, we're just going to go load up in a bus and we'll go out to a site. So it was one of these trips. So we went to a site called uh, the Kinney Brick Quarry, which is a privately... I know it well. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> which is a privately owned um, commercial quarry where they it's dig It's a Lagerstatten. It is a Lagerstatten, but on top but of it... it's a brick actually, quarry. Yeah, so they actually have on top of where we love to have the, these little fossils is a lot of these kind of like clay-like materials, which they will dig down to... Um, and remove the clays and make bricks. They don't care about going into where the fossil beds are. And the fossil beds are very much like Bayer Gulch, is that they're they're well-preserved. We have a little bit of everything. Um, so there's a whole variety of different kinds of fishes. There are amphibians, different kinds of arthropods. There's a lot of different insects and, and millipedes and things like that. So it's really fine preservation. Yeah, and, and lots and lots of plants. Um, but the fish there, um, most of them were small things. I mean, the largest shark up until that time in 2013, were a little, maybe just a little over a foot long. It was a shark called Coba Lotus. Um, which was is this the, freshwater or saltwater? Brackish is the best word to use right ah, now. Ah, because I thought all loggerstattens were freshwater. Not necessarily. Um, I oh. mean, Bear Gulch is a marine. Oh, excuse marine me. Sorry. Sorry. Um, right. Cambrian explosion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hello. <laughs> the ventriloquist yeah. talking again, but hey. <laughs> that wasn't me talking. So, that was wasn't. Oh me no! Talking. It actually was your other guy talking. Other there, guy talking. So that wasn't you. What was I thinking? Probably the most famous of all Lagerstattens is the Burgess Shale, which is a fossil-bearing marine deposit exposed in the Canadian Rockies of British Columbia, Canada. It's famous for the exceptional preservation of the soft parts of its fossils. Yes, Lagerstattens can be in marine and ocean sediments and in lacustrine or lake sediments as well. Well, there you have it. So I've been to the Kinney Brick Quarry. I found some plant material there, and there are some spectacular ratfish that come out of there. <laughs> There's a yeah. couple that are you're still working on. We can't talk about them, can we? We can talk about them a little bit. They're kind of they're kind of out there now, but they're not a, they're not officially named yet. Um, well, the male has got this ridiculously yeah. long uh, tenaculum that is just like cartoonish. Uh, it's kind of graphic, actually, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there's no doubt. It's like, hey, well, explain ladies. the function of a tenaculum and these head, these head denticles. Yeah, so in in uh, ratfish, uh, all extant ratfish, the males will have this basically this little kind of cartilaginous finger-like projection that actually is covered in little tooth-like uh, denticles, and 
there's been a lot of speculation on how these things have been worked. It's actually powered by the muscles that actually activate the jaw. So in terms of the the biting force that uh, a ratfish will use, um, it's kind of almost uses the same kind of muscles to actually make the finger go up and down. So to operate this, the way I kind of picture it, and I, I dissected a, a, a male ratfish head to kind of illustrate this, it had to work when the muscles or the jaws of the muscles are occluded. So it's, it has like a tight grip on his mouth or, and it's like, if you ever close your mouth and then like make your muscles kind of uh, yeah. flex, it's kind of that motion, but it had to been another signaling that actually, actually is pulling this tenaculum down, uh, you know, between the eyes. Now, what we have it at... But wait, is uh, it a display? Is it for sexual display? Or is it to actually hold on to the female? Holds it, uses it to grab the female. Well, there actually is now a, a photo um, that's been circulating online. Um, and, but it's like you have to really dig to find it. But it actually shows the male using the... It's a, it's a male um, uh, spotted ratfish in, a, in a, an aquarium tank. It actually has pinned the female with the little uh, tenaculum at the, really? the uh, pectoral fin, and it's pushing it towards pushing it towards the, the the ground essentially, so they they can get the right angle to to copulate. He can achieve purchase. Yeah. Now, wait. I so think I saw that on Pornhub. <laughs> no, yeah, almost. Yeah. Well, no, that's a ratfish <laughs> Pornhub. Uh, but no, we talked about that with uh, Dominique in great detail. Um, but. I think that the tenac the origin of the tenaculum, when you go back in um, Chondrichthian history, is that it was once part of the upper jaw itself, and yeah. migrated up. And I've actually worked on some illustrations of a fossil that shows that uh, grandpa ratfish that's got that. Do you know about that one? Yes, Ray. I, I actually I love that illustration of yours. Um, it's the it's the Chondrichthian called Helotus. So the ratfish called Helotus. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. My colleagues at the University of Chicago with you know Mike right. Coates. He's Talk really been Coates. spearheading this. And um, yeah, it was kind of bizarre that he presented this kind of uh, you know we never knew what what Helotus was really really looked like. There was some old work done back in I think in the thirties, I believe, um, that kind of described some of these more or less complete animals. But since the new technology of, of computed tomography or cat scanning fossils, uh, we've really jumped leaps and bounds in terms of our knowledge of, of fossil sharks. So it turned out, you know, uh, Helotus, which always had this kind of like blunt looking head and, uh, you know, they had kind of like a calorynchus uh, elephant fish body behind it. Um, turned out it has like a goblin face. I mean, it's just, it's really bizarre. Oh, it's, it has these it's just wicked. Of, wicked, wicked. And then, yeah, lo and behold, it's like right where the end of the nose would be. It actually is probably part of the tenaculum. It actually lifts up and... The whole... Uh, yeah, it's a set like... it's. Imagine this, Dave, that basically it's your buck teeth that end up migrating to the top of your forehead just so you can grab a female. A, a right? Yeah. JP, am I making this up? Yo, you're, you're about right. And uh, Okay, and wait, guys, behold, guys, I got to stop you here. I'm, I'm looking at two... I mean, you guys are just... We're, 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 we're you are such out. shark nerds. All right. So so tell me, though. So while I got you here, I'm going to pin you with my verbal whoa, tenaculum. Whoa. You need to buy me dinner first. And I want to know, first of all, JP, and then I'm going to ask Ray, why sharks? Why is why why I'm seeing both of you foaming at the mouth talking about these ancient sharks. Why? I've been wanting to talk to JP for a long time. Go ahead, JP. All right. Uh, yeah. So why why did I get in Chondrichthians? I'm very interested in the the late 
uh, like the Paleozoic Egyptians and some of the early Mesozoic forms. The Permian Triassic. Yeah, anything beyond the Lake Cretaceous gets boring, in my opinion. Um, Agreed. But, uh, and again, that's just, just my opinion. The ratfish lineages and, and the modern shark lineages, they all evolved a lot of different forms and shapes. A lot of them are very bizarre throughout time, and they're very exciting when you find their own fossils because they don't look like anything else you see alive today, even though they are related to things that are alive today. Um, so yeah, you get these, you know, we, what Ray and I keep talking about. Ray. And they're cartilaginous, so the fossil record is... Yeah, so that's the other thing. They're, they're a real huge mystery. So anytime you find any kind of evidence, whether it be, you know, and when they're complete, like at, at Kenny Brick Quarry or some of these other sites I've been working at, um, where they're coming out in weird places, any tooth or, or spine or something like that kind of adds to that picture. And... Um, and also then it kind of helps like when we do have the complete specimens and then you have these bits and pieces that have been known for hundreds of years, you can actually start building better pictures. Right. So, okay. So you like them because they're weird and twisted. They're weird, wonderful, and um, they're they're always like, kind of like a, a, a mental exercise in trying to okay. you know, figure out how these things lived. And uh, So you like well, the process. And Ray, you. Exactly Why? the same reason is that this is a whole – the Paleozoic world, and uh, JP, you'll agree with me here, you kind of, in the broader sense, sharks and shark relatives really dominated the seas in the Paleozoic, the, the diversity, and the Carboniferous especially. The armored fish were basically disappearing at that point, but sharks were so diverse, so weird, so fantastically odd, nothing like we see today other than the ratfish, Right, the ratfish are kind of like these, like remnants from this other world. But anyways, it's it's that uh, that new world. And JP was saying a real exercise in uh, trying to even imagine what they look like. And one of the beasts in particular was Helicoprion, which I'm dying to ask this guy one question about that. Did sharks replace the niche that was occupied by placoderms? Yeah, I that's that's actually a uh, the placoderms were massive and giant, and you would not want to meet one while you're swimming. Yes, and um, but here's the thing about that. So I've been working on some some fossils um, from the, about the same age as you know, like Dunkleosteus and other placoderms uh, from the Cleveland Shale. And what it's starting to show me that um, sharks were 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 doing some really cool things in terms of like diversification. I know there were a lot of different kinds of placoderms right. during the late Devonian, but the sharks were starting to do that. So they were starting to, to exploit niches that some of these placoderms weren't getting into um, in terms of like what they're feeding on. Um, Ray, have you ever, ever looked at the Cleveland shale material in, in uh, yeah, Cleveland, I, Ohio? I, I've been to the Cleveland Museum and been in the back rooms and looked at the tons and tons of shale piled up back there. Did you see the giant shark brain case? I don't think I did. Yeah, there actually is a giant Timacanth brain case. So we'll circle back to Timacanth, which is giant. Uh, giant, yeah. It was, it was almost like a foot or two long. But that must be it's, from a massive animal brain case. for it. The brain but for case. it to fossilize is a miracle. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the Cleveland uh, environment uh, back, uh, what, what is the age? Some sort of like 450 plus million years or so. You know, this reminds me is that I learned a lot about Paleozoic sharks directly from Reiner Zangirl. And when I sat at the knee of Reiner Zangirl, who was at the Field Museum all those years ago, in Chicago, uh, and I would talk about Megalodon being the largest shark ever, he would always say, da, 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 da. I, there are specimens from the Paleozoic that were probably just as big or maybe even. 
So he would always tell me uh, that, that never say never, you know, I mean. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm starting to trace that, Ray. Uh, so so give you an example. So there is this huge brain case um, at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. It's from the Cleveland Shale, so it's right, right in or within or right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And it's the same age as Dunkleosia. So this is a massive shark. So this is this is probably something pushing close to great white or greater in size. And within the group of tenacants, the other thing I've been tracing is that there's a cycle of diversification uh, within this group of convictians. So tenacants throughout time, so from the beginning of the, the late Devonian, they, they diversified. They had, you have small forms, you have large forms. Then you have an extinction event, the, Hay the Hagenberg extinction event. And then by the Carboniferous, so going from the late Mississippian into the uh, Pennsylvanian, you see the same cycle again. They survived. They probably weren't as diverse in the beginning of the, the, uh, the early Mississippian. By the time you get to late Mississippi, again, they're getting diverse and getting large. So one of the other sites I've been working on, I guess we'll touch on now, is uh, is a site called uh, Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky. Well, yeah. And we've gotten some massive shark fossils out of there. And this is another one of those rare sites that actually is preserving cartilage. And not only cartilage, but three-dimensionally preserved cartilage. Because you go to places like Bear Gulch, and Bear Gulch is fantastic. You know, you have sharks that are completely... Is uh, preserved. You have the skeleton. You have soft tissues and press, uh, you know, with it. So you have that actually outline of some of the sharks. But Pigment they're flattened patterns. like a can pancake, though. Right, right. You know, so you oh, can't really get. I a lot didn't of know that. Bear Gulch is completely yeah. pressed. Yeah, they're so they're, they're flat. <laughs> so the stuff in the Kentucky caves are those more dimensional? Those are they're three dimensional. They look like wow. you know, picking up a bone off of the ground kind well, of. Well, on my screen, I have a Glickmias 3D image from the mammoth cave website where you can rotate it and zoom in and see it yeah so glickmania is, is actually one of my favorite uh tina can sharks um for a number of reasons it's one of the most common things you can find in the the uh, essentially the, the entirety of the pennsylvanian period and you can find it in the in the uh, permian period as well especially in arizona some of the other sites i work and uh glickmanius is one of these conjectians that for the longest time we only knew it from its teeth it was, there was actually a weird little partial kind of skeleton-like thing from Nebraska, some, some road cut that was about, I guess, like Pennsylvania in age. And uh, that was it. But then this, this year, just right before 4th of July, um, there was actually an old record of, of a mapping crew that was actually mapping the tunnels of Mammoth Cave. And Mammoth, Mammoth Cave is the, is the largest extensive cave system in the world, and it's right here in the United States. Um, and, it's uh, bigger than the Carlsbad and yeah, all that. Really, it's, it's huge. It's massive. I mean, there's there's massive cathedral, you know, passageways. There's a lot of tiny little passageways that all all interconnect. JP wasn't kidding. Mammoth Cave National Park preserves the world's longest known cave system. Mammoth Cave is a limestone labyrinth with more than 400 miles of it explored, and the park estimates a potential for another 600 miles in its system. That's a place you don't want to be without a headlamp. And we've been finding uh, late Mississippian age sharks in a lot of these passages ways. And for the longest time, they were kind of like a, a novelty for a lot of the tour guides and some of the explorers of these caves. They're like, oh, yeah, there's, there's fish fossils a shark there. over there. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get drawn into this? How were you invited to go? And It kind of goes back to just last year. We were actually planning to do a big kind of uh, celebration for an event called National Fossil Day. Uh -huh. They're saying, hey, we're, we're seeing sharks in here. Do you, is there anything cool about this? 
So Vincent mm-hmm. sent me pictures, and I immediately got back. It's like, yes, this is fantastic. What is this? <laughs> oh, you know, where so are they you? recruited you. Ah. So the first specimen that was like really catching eyes was actually parts to a cranium of a shark called uh, Cyvotus striatus. Cyvotus is a tetacan shark. Again, it's one of these these uh, species that's known only from teeth. I mean, the teeth are they average on about two and a half centimeters wide, which is actually pretty large for a fossil shark tooth. But they can get up to four centimeters wide, and that's that's big for a lot of tunicans. The four centimeters is about uh, almost two inches. Yeah, and uh, so you have these two inch wide teeth, and it turned out that there's actually poking out of the cave wall um, is a two and a half foot long jaw that goes with these uh, these large teeth. Oh, beauty! So two and a half feet. To put it in perspective, that's actually longer than the the lower jaw of a great white. Wow, that's cool. So you went out. How scary is it going into those caves? And where did it, was this just part of the tour? Like, oh, can you look at that shark we've been staring at for all these years? Or did you go exploring and go into scary little passages? Oh yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of this is off trail for the tour uh, tour guides. Um, there, there are a lot of restricted areas that I got uh, access to wow. to get to that Cyvotus jaw you actually have to kind of crawl or stoop walk for uh, almost, uh, what was it, like two-thirds of a mile or something like that. Whoa. It was a long distance just to kind of do that. And by the time I got to the end where you can actually stand up, you know, I, you know I'm a big guy. You know, I'm not working out my arms that much that, uh, these days. So I was really feeling the pain uh, <laughs> by the time getting over there. But it all disappeared uh, when I started seeing the fossils in the cave walls. Yeah, just have to get to that spot. So we got to the part, part we can stand up, and then there's like a, a crevasse going down right in front of us. So we had to actually kind of crawl around the wall just to get to the, where the jaw was, was just on the other side. So yeah, You're bringing your own light source because this is all just deep, dark yeah, cave. Yeah, they provide, they provide us uh, headlamps with helmets. Uh, caving helmets, um, wear knee pads. Is this strata tilted or is it uh, no, horizontal? It's, all, it's pretty much horizontal. Really? Um, and the way these the, the cave passages formed in, at Mammoth Cave is that they're underground streams that, beginning in the Miocene, start carving down into the limestones. So it's all it's all pretty much late Mississippian limestones that form the cave. So if there's always water dripping and water flowing, and especially yeah. in the springtime, there's rivers in there. Right. So, but the tunnels that we were going for on the first trip, they were all essentially dry portions now. Oh, so they're right. all all the water is drained. You can actually you know traverse them without getting wet. However, back in, in October, we went into the wet portion of the cave where there actually is still a underground uh, river and stream actually flowing through the the caverns. And you actually have to time it right to actually make your way through these passages or um, it's going to be too high for you. Because we actually had to take underground kayaks uh, wow, into, wow. The, into these passages. It was actually interesting and lucky for us this year. So the day we went, you have to, you have to haul in the kayak. So they gave me the hard case uh, kayak, which is, it was only one. And it's for the rookie, you know, because, you know, you could be bumping into rocks and stuff like that. And everybody else had inflatable ones. So the rookie gets the hard case, so everybody else doesn't have to worry about puncturing their their kayak. So anyway, um, but there's actually certain like embankments that you actually have to you go for like a short distance, and it's beautiful water. It's quiet. The water's crystal clear, um, and then you have to moor your your kayak over rocks and other stuff. I can get to the next level of water and continue on. Underground prehistoric shark hunting in kayaks. Yeah, in kayaks. In a wetsuit. Yeah, you have... You're in a wetsuit. Yeah, wow. you have to wear a wetsuit. So here, imagine, you know, you know, I'm wearing a wetsuit. It's 
totally body form fitting, you know, wearing a cave helmet with a little light, you know, wearing my boots. It's, it's the weirdest uh, outfit I ever wore for a field uh, uh, work <laughs> ever, you know. So, wow. but that, but that, for this, for this particular trip, the water levels were actually much lower than expected. In fact, I think it's for them, it was like the lowest they've seen in a while. And it actually drained some of the passages where we were actually finding shark's teeth on the floor of the cave. Wow. Most of the time we've been seeing stuff on the walls and the ceiling. Um, but there was, there was a whole slew of, of, uh, shark's teeth and spines just littering, I mean, literally break the floor wow. of the so cave. So you are looking, you're spotting stuff nobody's ever seen before. Yeah, and that was the thing. So once I started identifying stuff and teaching them how to look for things, all of a sudden we have this like massive boom of specimens that were that were collected from last year to uh, recently. Well, I was going to wonder: are, are you collecting, or are you leaving them there? Are you scanning them in place, or what? So we're doing a little bit of both. Um, the smaller stuff, depending on the grade of limestone we're working with, they're actually easy. A lot of these sites are actually just easy. You can just the first trip I went, I actually just used the tip of a mechanical pencil just to kind of pop them out, gently pry them out. Yeah. The limestones were just that soft. And it's one particular layer. It's called the St. Genevieve Formation. It's basically kind of, a, it's an ancient crinoid forest reef system. I mean, everything Ooh. is pretty much crinoid hash throughout the entire hierarchy of this one level. There's teeth everywhere. And wow. it's just soft enough that we can just, you know, poke them out. Um, and the, a lot of the jaws that are cartilages we've been getting at have been coming out of um, that layer. There is some historical risks and risks of actually getting in there. So, like where the big Cybotus jaw is, and again, we have to make that huge crawl. It'll be very difficult for us to take that jaw out and bring it back to the lab. So, what we've opted to do is actually to use photogrammetry and making 3D models in place. So, we'll be working from those. Oh, I see. And you can see those online. Yeah. So, right. um, and well, I'm looking at one right now, the, the glick, and I can't tell. To me, it doesn't look like a jaw at all. Yeah, so so that's that's the new specimen that was kind of rediscovered this year. Mandibular knob and a yeah. Meckles <laughs> cartilage. I have no idea what these things are. Another tooth. I know what that is, a tooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, just to kind of talk a little about shark anatomy. So we use different terms in terms of like how we call jaws of, of uh, sharks and their kin. For us, we have the maxilla and the mandible, which is our, our jaws uh, essentially for our human skull. But since lower. they are, are made of cartilage, we use different terms. So there's the palato quadrate is the upper jaw. So it's actually part of the, the tooth-bearing element of the upper jaw, but then also the part that actually attaches to the skull is kind of like the, the where the cheek muscles and stuff uh, attach. Um, and then there's the Meckel's cartilage, uh, which is the lower jaw. And uh, you're actually, as part of your developmental biology, you are born with Meckel's cartilage, um, which actually eventually kind of like fuses into your own your own mandible. Dave is showing off the lower jaw. Of a... Tell me what this is with this dentition. Like a lizard. <laughs> Can't tell with the small picture that I'm, I'm seeing. Ray said reptile at first. No, actually, that's, huh. Yeah, it is a fish. It is a fish. <laughs> Ray, can you do a screenshot? I can't. I can. can you? Here, I can, yeah. All right. Sorry. Hold on. Dave's holding up a Wait, bony fish jaw. Wait, hold lower, on a second. But in, that's a lower working? jaw, but in a shark, that would be the Meckles. That would be the Meckles cartilage, yeah. Which is so the lower jaw. See here. And capture. One, two. <laughs> Got it. That'll be our screenshot. Yeah. So, 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 so this is a mackerel. It's a mackerel that I caught in, a, in okay. the Great Barrier cool. Reach. It was a 40-pound mackerel. Yeah. Holy mackerel. This <laughs> lager, you, so you've 
basically stumbled across a a, a lager Staten in the Kentucky caves of uh yeah is it mostly sharks in that sea is uh, do the sharks dominate uh, do you have bony fish in there too are there actinopterygians yeah we are getting some um bony fish material as part of our uh excavation so we'll be doing a lot of screen watching so over time this actually this kind of slightly brittle material that actually makes up the, the cave walls. It actually will get loose, which just gets down and it kind of falls to the, they call it cave fall. And uh, we'll gather that up and we'll screen wash it. So we'll be getting actually a micro vertebrate fauna as part of this. So it actually, which contribute greatly to our uh, understanding of the diversity of the chondrichthians there. So now when we have big sharks, we have tiny little sharks. Um, one of my favorites is Thrinacidus. Uh, are you familiar oh, with that? Oh man. What is it? That eel shark. The oh. eel shark, yeah. Um, in fact, in, in our reconstruction that we use for our website, we actually have Thrinacidus gorging themselves off of the carcass of Cyvotus. Um, you mean well like a hagfish, a, like a whale fall or something, kind of? No. Well, yeah, I think of think of yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, but instead of being, uh, you know, hagfish, these, these uh, jawless fishes, it's being devoured by a, a whole group of sharks. Oh, cool, cool. But yeah. actually, so Thrinacodon, right? Uh, Thrinacidus. Thrinacidus. Thrinacidus is described by uh, Eileen uh, Grogan and, and Dick Lund, right, from the Bear Gulch? Yeah, so you know, this is actually kind of getting into uh, bone of contention, to use a pun. <laughs> Uh-oh. Cartilage of contention. Yeah, so Dr. Grogan and Dr. Lund originally described this complete eel-like fish, they, which they recognized it had teeth to prefer to a shark in the past, going back to like the 1800s, uh, of a shark called Thrinacidus. Um, uh, but you know, no one's ever found jaws or skulls or anything of this kind of, of chondrichthian before the body. Yeah. Yeah. So no one really knew. So they said, you know, this eel like thing, maybe we should give it like a special name. So they actually called it Thrinacosalaki, Gracia, uh, which is the, the last living of the, what we call the Thrinacodont, um, Bobodont sharks, you know, by the way, if any of you are getting lost with all these crazy Paleozoic shark names that we're talking about. Just visit J.P. Hotnet's page on our website at paleonerds.com and dive right on in. There's lots of art there, too, to help you visualize these fantastically cool creatures. And hopefully, it'll make a lot more sense to you, because I want you to love them just as much as I do. They're actually related to a thing called Phobotus. Which we have here in southeast Alaska, and I want you to come to that site, my friend. I would love uh, to come out there. Did you do you know about the complete Phobotus now from Morocco? It blows my mind because it looks like these the snipe eel shark. So Dave, this this shark that we're talking about looks like a, a, an eel, right? But it's a chondrichthian. It's got a cartilage. Just shows the tremendous diversity, diversity of these. So well, well, JP, sharks, this... were they all carnivores? With pretty much, there weren't any filter feeder yeah. sharks, were there? No, there there's, no. There's, there's some that can be are classified as filter. I mean, think about whale sharks and and basking yeah. uh, sharks. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely fit that. Well, I mean, back uh, then, back in the Devonian, and their great diversification. It's kind of hard to say yay or nay. Now there are some yeah. shark shark like relatives, or depending on who you talk to, are shark relatives called acanthodians. Have you heard come across that term? No, I have never heard of that term, and I'm completely lost. Yeah, so there's actually a thing called uh, Acanthodes, which actually we get in abundance in some form or another at uh, Kenny Brick Quarry. They're small little fish. Um, their pectoral fins, actually they're all their fins except for their tail, is pretty much a spine. So they're very right. spiny-looking sharks. In fact, they're nicknamed the spiny sharks. But they, right. they don't have teeth. They actually have uh, modified gill rakers oh. in the gill basket. So they okay. filter feed, and they're they're kind of analogous 
to the paddlefish um, that we find here uh, in, in uh, North America and in Asia. With the um, big, long snout? You know, no, it doesn't have a what do you mean long a snout. It's a short-faced fish, but it opens its mouth pretty wide. <laughs> so, right. okay. so it's just kind of swimming around, taking in uh, you know particles and filtering them out, and that's how cool. it works. JP, is, is the Kentucky stuff uh, pretty much the same age as the Bear Gulch stuff? It's older. Oh, it's older. Yeah, yeah. so the stuff at Bear Gulch materials are approximately 323 million years. Mm -hmm. um, we are roughly estimating what we got at the Mammoth Cave is about 345 to 340. Because we actually have multiple uh, levels that actually are have sharks. So the St. Genevieve, which it turned out this is actually the first real record of sharks coming out of the St. Genevieve Formation. And it's been known for hundreds of years, this, this rock unit. Um, but below that is the St. Louis Formation, which actually is historically really well known for fossil uh, shark material. Lots of teeth. So there's a group of uh, old geologists and paleontologists, uh, St. John and Worthen. They were the original grandfathers of, of shark paleontology in North America, wrote a bunch of volumes on shark teeth uh, in this country. They did a lot of work with stuff from the uh, St. Louis. And it's just isolated teeth and spines and stuff like that. So we have that at Kentucky. But then above that is a formation called the Gherkin Formation. And that is getting into the, the age ranges of Bear Gulch. Okay. So where are these fossils being uh, captured? Uh, what collection are they going into? The ones coming out of Kentucky? Where are they plans for display or? Yeah, so um, the National Park uh, Service is going to be planning a display at uh, Mammoth Cave. So the team there is is, is starting working up some ideas. Um, I have a lot of the material right now in my personal lab that I'm going through and cataloging um, and cleaning and things like that. And um, they're all be well housed at the uh, basically their museum collections they have on site at the. Uh, Mammoth Cave uh, National Park. Well, but what ocean is this from? Is this the Inland Seaway? Uh, the North no, no, American? no. This is well. There's a lot of different seaways throughout time. Yeah. yeah. So at this at this stage, you look at the paleogeography of our continent at this time. Um, this is the beginning of the formation of Pangaea. Um, so Pangaea is not formed yet. That's about the time we get into like the late Pennsylvania and Permian, and well into the Triassic, and then it starts breaking up again. But during the the Mississippian period. It's the continents are starting to collide. So there's actually these small little inlet sea waves. Or a lot of them are shallow. In between, right. Um, the specific areas is a marine basin. It's an ancient marine basin called the Illinois Basin. So it actually stretches up into places like Illinois, Indiana, um, and Missouri, and as well as Kentucky. Well, I was going to say, we would be remiss if we did not ask you about your current job. You are working at a place called Dinosaur Park in Maryland, I've never heard of it. Are you at the office right now? Uh, yeah, this, so what you're seeing behind me is my underground basement uh, uh, headquarters for Dinosaur Park. What's Dinosaur Park? And you work for, is it the National Park Service that you work for? You answered events and... No, uh, so, so my career is actually split between two places. So I do work part-time for the National Park Service uh, doing projects for them with the, the paleontology program with Vincent Santusi. My day-to-day -day job is with the Maryland National Capital Parks and Planning Commission, which is kind of the county version of the National Park Service for just right outside of Washington, D.C. So, so Dinosaur Park is it's a small hillet that's now surrounded by industrial warehouses, but it was, <laughs> it was conserved to kind of protect this, this resource. And its sediments, particularly, it's basically lots of clay, um, dating back to the early Cretaceous period. So wow. my experience with working with Sonorosaurus, which was actually about the early Cretaceous of Arizona, 
wound up surfacing me when I came <laughs> here. So we have a, a sauropod dinosaur called Astrodon. It is the state dinosaur for the state of Maryland. And it's wow. a 60, 70 foot Brachiosaurus relative. It actually has a really unique history. Astrodon, Astrodon Johnsoni, was actually on track to being the second dinosaur named in the United States. It was described by a, a physician um, from Baltimore. His name was Christopher Johnson. And it was just kind of like he made some sort of interesting commentary about the recent um, fossil discoveries of dinosaurs in New Jersey. And he said, oh, yes, I have teeth of this new animal I'm calling Astrodon. Um, and they're, they make the they add to the story of the, the ancient life of, of North America. And the reason why he coined the term Astrodon is like, you know, he actually studied uh, dentistry as, as one part, and he liked to do cross-sections. So he actually broke this tooth in half and noticed that on the inside of the, of the, of the tooth of Astrodon is actually a, kind of a starburst pattern. So Astro uh, is star, and Don is tooth. What year star was this described? So that was described in... 1859. So it's early. Original... It's early. Yeah. And then it was actually given the, the binomial nomenclature name Astrodon Johnsonite in 1865. Where are you in relation to Calvert Cliffs? Um, give me an hour going south, I'll be there. <laughs> okay. So you're up closer so, to Washington, north of Washington, D.C. I'm not far. Yeah. Kids can come dig at this. They don't dig. They surface collect. So Yeah, right. so you know, it's it's a non-digging site. Um, so, yeah, pre-COVID, <laughs> uh, we had programming where the first and third Saturdays of each month, uh, visitors were allowed to come and hang out with us for about a four-hour period and help us look for fossils. We don't necessarily dig there unless there's something major kind of sticking out of the ground going into the hill. Um, but a lot of times, because it's just clay, when we have really good rains, which we had this year, um, it washes the clay away and leaves the heavier material behind, basically the fossil material. In terms of commonality, I would actually rename the park as the, the Early Cretaceous Tree Park, because we actually <laughs> get more fossil plant material, especially carbonized wood, which wow. is scientifically known as lignite. From um, fires. Um, it's kind of a coal-like oh, coal. looking material, okay. but it's, it's, it's just basically fossil plant material that's been compressed oh. uh, for millions of years. So um, it hasn't been really mineralized, so you can't call it petrified wood. You, you call it carbonized wood. So I want to get back to this uh, question, Ray, that you want to ask JP about oh. your dream shark, your, I guess, your talisman shark, the helicoprion. Well, there's one that I'm I'm obsessed with, and I talk to everybody who uh, knows something about it. But uh, certainly, JP is a man whose opinion I would value very much. And I know that you've seen a lot of fossils that I haven't seen. You put one gill slit on your helicoprion, <laughs> sir. I've seen the reconstruction. Did you do that poster? Actually, is that your your artwork? Yeah, for the for the National Fossil Day logo for that year. Yes, I I, yeah. I insisted that it only have one gill slit. Oh man, when we did the paper in 2013, our group really stuck with the one gill slit thing. But and the Eugeniodontids in general, I know that you've you've looked at them. But your answer when uh, Jesse Pruitt said, "Hey, what's up with the one gill slit?" I saw on Facebook. You said, uh, "Cladistics." Yeah, give, give me a primer on gill slits. Why would there be one, two, or five? Okay, so this actually goes into how we classify sharks. Oh. Um, so there are two major groups of sharks. There are the elasmobranchs. Um, elasmobranchs is essentially the lineage that is all modern 
true modern sharks. sharks. Yeah, so that would be you know your great whites and then also your your stingrays, and they have multiple gill slits. And depending on where they're located, you're a ray or you are a shark. You know, um, but when you look at ratfish. They only have one, what they call a soft opercular opening. Like a fish, like a regular fish has only one. Like a regular fish, except the in bony fish, it actually actually has a bone that covers that opening. That's actually the operculum. It's actually right. a bone called right. the operculum. But in, in cartilaginous fish, it's just a soft opercular opening. <laughs> but anyway, um, this particular lineage of chondrichthians, um, it has to do with their position. So the gills themselves are actually kind of just underneath where the cranium is, the back of the head. That's actually how they were pretty much classified. So from everything we've seen where we have more or less a complete skeleton or at least a somewhat articulate skeleton of things that are referred to ratfish, that's where the gills are. And including the few eugeniodonts um, like Sarcoprion that actually have where the gills are. They're, they're kind of basically being, you know, just below the cranium on the back. Usually a good indication that is a soft operculum. Now, I had this conversation with Jesse and he said, well, you know, we've looked at this, you know, in high speed pursuit predators, they have to have multiple gills just to active to function. Then I'm thinking to myself, well, what about barracuda? What about swordfish? They have well, singular okay, opening. Okay, you know? I'll grant you that. But from what I understand, too, and talking to Dr. Uh, Coates and looking at the, the diversity way back when, that uh, a lot of those uh, classic sharks like Cladosolake and all that are all kind of on the holocephalon side of the tree. Well, wait, wait. Uh, what? Huh? What does so, that mean? What does that mean? So these are a lot of the classic sharks and um, the a actually... Holocephalus? What? Well... The ratfish side of the tree, if you will. Right. Okay, with the one gill slit. But a lot of these prehistoric, these Paleozoic sharks, the diversity back then, it's like gill slits, you know, modern day sharks, there's five, six, seven. Then there's ratfish with the one, high speed stuff. But uh, is there, are there eugeniodontids from the Bear Gulch formation that you saw? So, according Another to. Another weird thing is they don't have pelvic fins. Or do they? Yes, that's the other thing. I can't explain that. That's that's the one. Okay, of those weird... nobody knows about that. And until we find a, we can say, oh, yep, that's that's a male. That's Chuck. You know, he's he's dating Irene. You know, <laughs> until we have that evidence, it's hard to say. Gills are a little bit more easier because we see them. But yeah, in, in terms of how these things are positioned and and the anatomy, so talking about like Cladosolaki and the samoriforms, uh, so things like Stethacanthus. You know, Stethacanthus. Got the comb on the back of his head. Yeah, we have Stethacanthus actually from uh, Mammoth Cave. But wait, wait, Ray, why do you think that the one gill slit on the helicoprion is not correct? Well, when he's closely to my, related to the ratfish. When it goes back to my uh, mentor, uh, Reiner Zengerl, and his reconstructions, uh, the Cassiodontid sharks that he described, uh, which are related, they're Eugeniodontids. He would always portray them with five gill slits. That's what he saw in the uh, the, the black shales that he was looking at uh, from uh, the the Midwest. So I don't know. I but I'm an artist, and uh, you but know, JP just but used I, comparative anatomy with a swordfish, which reaches speeds of yeah, what, sixty kilometers an hour in the ocean. All right, so he got me with a touche there, but that's a bony <laughs> fish with a different metabolism true, than a true, white shark yeah. but anyways yeah i know and, and until we find the specimen i don't know but you know we got to keep looking that's the beauty and the the craziness of trying to be an artist portraying these creatures and then sticking your career on it and then oh shit, i'm wrong because science keeps changing 
But until we find the fossils, yeah. but I don't know, JP, you're, you're swaying me here, man. So I don't know. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's depending on, who, like, you know, who's doing the work and how they interpret things. The stuff that Zangrel worked on, you know, some of them were complete, some of them were not so complete, and he had to, like, put pieces back together. Um, so, so we're, we're talking about the black shale material in, in the, the Illinois, uh, Indiana re- region, um, which is late Pennsylvanian age. Knowledge Pennsylvania. Yeah. And um, so I could I could see where Zengel was going at the time, but, then, but there's other specimens that kind of suggest otherwise. But this is also, again, we're using cladistics um, actually, to kind of fill in the pieces. There's those beautiful specimens from the Wapiti formation of the Cassiodontid sharks and everything is there. And those are sitting up in Alberta, and I keep encouraging my Paleozoic shark friends to really look at those. Have you ever seen those? I've read, the, I definitely read the papers and seen the photographs of the materials. I would uh, think the Gill Slick question could be answered there, but we have we've we've nerded out. <laughs> yeah. Way, yeah, you way, guys, way deep. yeah, I'm having trouble following all these last. This is my chance to talk to JP. JP has yeah. been absolutely a blast. Thank you. We have two questions. We asked. we have a couple of questions we traditionally ask everyone. So. You can get in the old time machine. You cannot go forward. You can only go back into the past. When do you want to go back to? And what do you want to see? Before I can answer that, will I get a boat? Or can I get a boat? <laughs> you can get it whatever method of transportation you desire. Oh, do you need a boat for the time travel? Yeah, wow. I do. Your choice. So what I would go is actually to the south rim of the Grand Canyon and then go back 260 million years to the time of the Kaibab Formation. That's like my favorite all-time place to work is that, that particular rock unit in northern and Arizona. How far down from the rim is the Kaibab It's formation? You're standing on it. Okay, so that's the top. Yeah. And what is it? Is it limestone? Is it? It's, uh... it's primarily limestone. Um, it's, it's turning out to be loaded with sharks. Um, the last count I had were well over. We're, we're, getting, we're getting close to 50 species of sharks just on oh, the various wow. bits we're getting. Lots of different kinds of teeth. Um, we got eugenodonts, we've got tinicants of different varieties, um, lots of um, other relatives to modern sharks um, from there. And it's another so you want to see that ocean? You want to see I that I want to see that. I want to see a, a megatina pedalus, you know, cruising <laughs> the bottom looking for prey, you know, and see if my ideas are, are correct about it, you know. So, and see if actually... I'd That's love awesome. to see your sketch of that. Will you share that sketch, man? Maybe yeah, we can I, do I our can own. Do that. That, absolutely. Why don't we do our own collaborative reconstruction of that shark? I, I'd be, I would love to do that with yeah, you. Yeah, Doctor Doctor Lund actually gave you some pointers on what to look for in terms of that group of sharks because he, in the uh, the relationship scheme of how uh, Megatina pelis and its its ilk kind of relate to other pelodonts, he's now defined as like there's like a true pelodont group which includes Pedalotus and Balanci, you know, some of you're, you're really familiar with. And then Megalotinopetalus and Peripristis are kind of another group that's its own family, but they belong to a bigger group called Pelodontomorpha, which is a super order. Wow. Yeah. So those yeah. pedalodonts, the pedal tooth sharks, you want to see that ocean way back when. Yeah, I definitely uh, want to see that. I want to see a lot of the genacids. Uh, genacids are these skate-like sharks. What's a genacid? A skate? Genas- genasa, oh. yeah. It's, it's a pedalodont shark that evolved to be very skate-like. Right. Flat. Yeah. Flat with big pectoral fins and kind of a uh, little sharky tail at the end. Um, But they have really weird nipping teeth. And um, (laughs) we got a lot of new varieties coming out of uh, uh, Mammoth Cave of that particular group. So if you were swimming around in this Kaibab Ocean, uh, would you live very long? Well, I don't know. Or something nailed you? 
get, get in the mind of a shark. You know, would I be considered prey? I would have a very strange body look to for those uh, fishes at that time. You know, I probably I would probably be you know. Uh, I'll have probably a lot of curious fishes looking at me, coming close and seeing what I, if I'm food or or a predator, you know. So I'll, I'll wear a shark suit when I go in there. Yeah, do it. So I ask this of every guest, JP. Uh, this has been fun and informative, and I'm going to do a lot of extra research just to decipher half of this interview. But uh, <laughs> sorry, you know, but no, I represent uh, the everyman, and uh, I have a, a great fun and knowledge for paleontology, but I'm certainly no university schooled expert at all. And that's where we leave it to you guys. But one thing that has bothered me, especially this last few years, science has been marginalized in the U.S. recently, and that's mostly through propaganda, conspiracy theories running rampant on social media. And people are not fact-checking and they're reposting stuff that they think is real and it's not. So as a scientist and an educator, what advice do you have for the non-scientist to help promote the idea that science is based on fact and that opinions are just that, somebody's point of view? I think we need to educate people first is that the concept of science and just the attitude of science, scientists in, in general go by a peer review process. If they don't, you probably wouldn't consider them scientists in the first place. And when I mean by peer review, we have other people checking our work. Essentially, when we have people checking our work, you know, we go with a majority rule. It's almost like it is almost like a voting process. Like, okay, is my data accurate? Am I saying the right things? Those sorts of ideas. And so we need to get people from outside of our our fields. If we can again educate people about what science is really about, is dealing with facts, and we're checking our facts before we actually present our facts. Um, I think that's the one of the biggest educational keys we can do, and that's what I try to do when I. Take people out to the dinosaur park, you know, like, oh, I'm going to find a T-Rex. I'm like, well, no, you're not going to find a T-Rex. <laughs> but there are some other cool things here that are T-Rex-like, you know. We do have a big meat-eating dinosaur at Dinosaur Park that's T-Rex-like. So, and you can introduce them to something uh, totally new and fantastic that uh, that an average person may have never thought of. And National Fossil Day kind of plays into this, doesn't it, a little bit? Yeah, so, so that would be, that's, that's my strike back as, as part of this continuing conversation is that we use science-focused events. National Fossil Day um, is one of them that's for paleontology. Um, so every year around uh, the what we call it Earth Science Week, on um, that particular Wednesday, um, we hold an event called National Fossil Day. National Fossil Day is essentially the celebration of our fossil heritage in this country. And we encourage our partners, which you guys are partners are now. We are partners. We actually, we, we partner with them, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Are you the guy in charge of National Fossil Day? Basically, it's been kind of, you're the PR, you're the front man? After five years, this is my last year as the National Fossil Day coordinator. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, but yes, for it was a huge pleasure for the last five years to do that since 2016. Cool. And, um, and the only reason why I've stepped down is so I can focus on some of these bigger projects that I got involved with with the National Park Service, like Mammoth Cave and, and also the Grand Canyon. Well, I had no idea that you were doing the posters. I didn't know, like, thank you for your service, sir. That's yeah, been a great you thing that you're service. doing. Well, thank you, yeah. Yeah. And JP, so, it's uh, been a great interview. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've, You know what? As science always leads to more questions, this interview is going to lead me to more <laughs> research. Darn. Oh. Well, 
I, I hope good. it leads us to a, a, an good. expedition to the uh, to the caves in Kentucky, man. Things get a little bit more under control with COVID. I would totally invite both of you to come out and and help us out, get the, the full full shark in in the dark kind of experience. Oh, you know? that's Ooh. awesome! Shark, shark in, in the, the dark, dark. <laughs> dude. I like that. There's a, there's an episode title. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, JP, right, thanks, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. There was a lot of Latin names in there that I can't, couldn't follow, but uh, hopefully I've, I've done this podcast justice and did some good explanations <laughs> throughout. I'm sorry, Dave. I get carried away, but <laughs> well, uh, I get so excited. You love all sharks. You love ancient sharks. He's into the same stuff I am, and he's a kindred spirit, yeah. and it was a chance for me to finally meet him, and so that's been yeah. great to uh, actually have this platform in which to draw these people into these conversations, but... Yeah, you know, that's the nerd way is you just, yeah. you start going. But he's and, got a great excitement. He had a great energy, and he's found and named a lot of these sharks, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's done uh, that uh, Kaibab formation. Uh, sounds like uh, it's pretty juicy stuff. He's named like 10 species out of there. Wow. And maybe if you're really nice to him, he might name one for you. <laughs> I don't think. Strassman eye. The ventriloquoi. So. Ventriloquoi so. something or whatever. Yeah, Talking so, out of the mouth. Uh, so name some of those sharks. Uh, well, he was saying there are three or four different types of sharks. Well, we were talking about tinacanth sharks with the silent C in front of the T. Tinacanth. That's a species. No, you were... No, 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 no. That's it's a whole a group. group. It's a whole group. The hybodonts. Okay, okay. Hybodonts are another group. Okay, there's tinacanths, hybodonts. What else? There's xenocanths. There's oh my God. pedlodonts. There's eugeniodonts. Okay. There's apodonts. These are families and orders of sharks. Right. And then you get down to the genus, and then there's species right. of those right. genus. So Not going to go there. So it goes on and on. So as you know, maybe 99% of uh, life on planet Earth is extinct. Yeah. So a lot of names way back yeah. when. But uh, anyway, see, yeah, he's a great communicator. And that whole story of how those Kentucky cave sharks, man, shark in the dark. Yeah, I Find like a that. Shark that in is the dark. awesome. Shark in the dark. In a park. Yeah. So there you go. Shark in the dark in a park. Have you been to that cave? No, I have not. I have. I think I've driven near it. Or uh, that's in Kentucky, Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. We didn't ask if there were any mammoths in there. I think it's referring to the size. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what do I okay, know? Okay, so Ray, uh, it's very. This is a very rare to those who are listening. Uh, you know, we watch each other on Zoom, but I delete the videos, so it's just this audio recording. And this view of you, Ray, is, is very, very odd because it is though you're in... You can well, see me? <laughs> no, it, it is as bright as my room in here in Southern California with the eternal sunshine. You have an, a beautiful sunshiny day up there in Ketchikan, don't you? We're having a beautiful sunshiny day. And what is so great about this winter light is the, you know, the angle oh, yeah. of it. Everybody everybody looks good yeah. in this light. This is magical golden light. You know, the cinematographers are always trying to get that. Ketchikan is 55 degrees. Yeah. I'm at 34 degrees north. And you know what is great is the farther north you get, too, uh, are the lingering sunrises <sighs> and sunsets. Ray... Because when you're in the tropics, few people realize this. When the you're sun, in the tropics, the sun goes dark. down like 20 minutes. Yeah. Boom. It's light. Yeah. There's the sunset. Boom. Up here, you've got a sunrise, especially in the winter, that lasts for like two yeah. hours. I had a spectacular yeah. show out my window. I have seen sunsets tonight, in Ketchikan yeah. that lasted four hours. Red colors, yeah. four hours. And then in Anchorage, 
I remember sunsets oh, yeah. that would literally last half the day. Yeah, yep. I love yep. it. So the northern light is really uh, something, but you know, having the light. Well, you know what Alaska has? Too. Alaska has rarefied air. That it does. It makes objects in the distance seem closer, and objects close seem farther away. We have no freeways here, man. <laughs> So, hey, man, with that, we will uh, talk okay. to you soon, man. we got more episodes coming up. Oh, uh-oh. What? Are you a paleo nerd? Yeah, just like our guest. He said it's in my DNA. I can't remember a time when I wasn't a paleo yeah. nerd. So I've always been one. You're a late in life paleo nerd. Well, from my 30s. You admitted that in an earlier show. Some of us were just... No, wait a minute. What am I saying? I collected plastic dinosaurs and had them sink in the tar pits in my sandbox at age... Age eight, so I was a paleo nerd then. Okay, all right. I'm signing off from beautiful Southeast Alaska, where I live in the town of Ketchikan. And I'm signing off from beautiful Ojai, California, land of the Heritage Oaks and the Matillaha Sandstone. Okay, man. All right, buddy. See you. Over and out. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.